This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We've been paying very close attention to what is happening locally in this pandemic now that we have moved into red restrictions. And we wanted to find out how things were going at the BMO Center simply because this is a center that has had all kinds of indoor soccer that has been played, another another business that we can talk about that has all kinds of protocols in place, has followed and created restrictions, but is still a business. So how are things? Well, Tom Partalis joins us from the BMO Center. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Tom, when we spoke after the second 22 restrictions were announced, there was some concern about scheduling and and being able to operate the BMO Center. Some of that had to do with the fact that schedules had already come out, and now how do you rewrite everything? Now that we move into the red restrictions, what does that do for what is happening under your roof? Well, right now, Mike, um, we um, we started registrations uh, late September, early October, and uh, our leagues started in the middle of October, and of course we went until December the 13th, um, this past Sunday. So um, now uh, we are closed. Uh, we have suspended all league games, all um, rentals and uh scrimmages so we you can say that we're almost completely closed hmm. well that's that's not the way anybody wants things to be can you take us through the decision to in, instead of maybe look at ways to involve a few people where it's just decided that you close the doors and stop operations well, we have to follow the um, the uh, guidance uh, from in the uh, uh, protocols from the uh, Ministry of Health, as long as and the uh, Ontario Soccer. So, um, with we're only allowed right now under the red uh, rules, uh, we're allowed ten uh, players on a field. So that doesn't give us much room um, because most of our revenue comes from the um, uh, team registrations and uh, we have we were closed from uh, March the 13th uh, and now we're closing back again uh, December 13th so if you're a superstitious guy you'll say oh those are not very good dates but the, the truth is that we did close in um, March the 13th we stayed closed for about Six and a half months, uh, the doors were locked. We didn't have anybody in the building. And uh, at the end of September, we starting to uh, open up, uh, getting registrations. And, of course, uh, every month we were go- going from green to yellow, and now we're red. And, um, you know, the decision is that we cannot operate because if you can't have games, and, of course, there were no contact games, but still no scrimmages. Uh, a lot of the young players are not going to be coming out. Um, so all, uh, all the leagues now are suspended until further notice. And uh, hopefully that after a month, after uh, the uh, 28 days, uh, we, the City of London may be going back to the orange or yellow 
and then we can resume uh, play. We're talking with Tom Partalis from the BMO Center, finding out how things are going there. And Tom has let us know that watch out for the date with a 13 in it. You're right, if you're superstitious, but that's been the closure date for two different periods. What does it mean to the overall operation of the BMO Center to have closures like this? Obviously, you're not having money come in, but this this is a big venue. This is a spot that, uh, that certainly has some overhead costs what is the impact of closing the doors for periods of time? Well, it has a, a huge impact on our financial uh, uh, and our revenues because if you don't get any money coming in, it's really hard to um, plan ahead and then do things. Um, you know, it's it, it's really hard. It has uh, right now been closed for over six months, and then we're. We're closed now indefinitely. We don't know if it's going to be four weeks, if it's going to be five weeks. So uh, we have to do a lot of creative uh, uh, financing uh, because that's the only thing we could uh, do right now. Uh, We did get some help from the government, like everybody else did. And uh, the only thing I can say, Mike, is that we're not the only ones in the London area. Every business is going through the same uh, problems as we are, and uh, we, we just hope that we can make it this year and uh, we keep the place open. Tom, is there a risk that you wouldn't be able to? Are you looking into the future in that way, or is it still a, a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, let's see what happens? Well, it is that. Uh, we, we're going uh, right now month-by-month. Uh, uh, we do have bills to pay, and um, I know that we negotiated um, with the bank uh, as far as the principal and interest on the mortgage. And uh, the next thing is the uh, property taxes. As you know, Mike, or some people don't know, that we're, we pay over $200,000 property taxes here uh, at the BMO, and that is, uh, you know, a substantial amount. And uh, I know... Uh, uh, other places don't pay as much, so they're not going to be as hard hit as we are. Uh, you know, the JLC or the Budweiser Garden, um, they don't pay any property taxes. And I know a lot of people will not don't know that, but we are paying a lot of taxes here. And uh, hopefully we can talk to the city if, if the need comes. And that's something that hasn't happened just yet, but that's something that you would entertain in, in talking with the city? Correct. Yeah, we will do that. But right now, we're, we're still holding our own and uh, we're paying our bills and, uh, you know, we're, we're surviving. And I, I just hope that we're not going to be um, closed for more than the four weeks in the red zone. And I, I hope we're not going into the gray, which, mean, which means a complete uh, lockdown. So we, we are... Um, we're just being optimistic and hopeful that uh, things will get better. And uh, hope by the end of January, we can resume our activities here at the BMO. Well, Tom, you always have an optimistic outlook. Don't lose that. And let's see where we do sit at the end of the 28-day period that we're in right now. We really appreciate the update and the information, Tom. All the best through the holidays. Thank you, Mike. All the best to you. Please keep safe. Yeah, thank you. Bye. That is Tom Partalis from the BMO Center. So 
we talk about overhead and you think about what it would cost to operate a center like the BMO Center, which is a big building. So you add in all your amenities and, and those sorts of things, and you add in what it would cost simply to pay the hydro bill, and then a property tax bill of $200,000 a year. That means you have to find a way to generate revenue, and being off from March to September and now off 28 days at least right now puts that into a, a tough spot. So we'll see how things go. We'll continue to follow that story at the BMO Center. But as Tom pointed out, it's no different than any other businesses. It's no different than anybody who's trying to pay their own rent in their home. And that's why we'll get to that a little later on in the show, where the idea that evictions would be a topic at the beginning of this, hey, it was, no, let's let's protect. But some of those protections have gone away. And when protections go away, you're exposed, you become vulnerable, and we do have certain situations for individuals that that aren't as rosy as they used to be, and it's still, okay, well, how long? And we don't have an answer. We get the glimmers of news today that in PEI, they have now vaccinated someone, and in Newfoundland, Labrador, they have vaccinated someone, and these stories will kind of die down a little bit and then instead of being hey the vaccine has arrived look at this every province has this person who has been vaccinated and and that's fantastic and a lot of times they are healthcare workers and you just you can either see it on their face or if they talk about it you certainly hear it from them the absolute exhaustion that they feel and and it's 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 a feeling that they can't necessarily put into words the idea that they have been vaccinated that they have been staying away from family members if their family members have been grown because they've been in the healthcare sector these are all beautiful stories then the story will turn to okay who's next and how many vaccines are here and how many doses of those vaccines are here and when is my turn And that's going to be something that changes in a hurry. The idea of, hey, here's the plane and everything's arriving. And it is really only that, isn't it? It's really only that and the rollout of this vaccine that will allow businesses to say, okay, I can now see that finish line. But is it four months away? Is it six months away? Is it nine months away? Nobody can really speak to that yet. And then the other question that's coming up, and you can go to globalnews.ca right now and see an example of this. The top trending story right now at globalnews.ca is this one. How long will the COVID-19 vaccine protect you? And here's what we know so far. Every once in a while, we get an opportunity to boil it down. As humans, what do we need? need water, number one. need some food. We need some shelter. Beyond that, it's kind of up to us. How much more do you want? How minimalist are you? But being a minimalist has nothing to do with those first three things. You need those things. And we just talked about an affordable housing project that is going to be built and should be ready in about a year from now. And that's good. It will have 61 units, and rents will be 50% to 80% of what is the going rate in London, which right now is roughly an average of $1,000 a month, which is still a lot of money, but certainly that is helpful. 
Now, when we look at this pandemic and the wake that it may leave behind for people who are renting homes, it's it's kind of it's kind of unknown right now how big that wake is going to rise, but we're starting to get a picture of it, and that picture isn't great. Joining us right now is someone who can help us to understand how things are looking in the housing world for people who rent. Please welcome to London Live, Toronto Center, NDP, MPP, and housing critic, Suze Morrison. Ms. Morrison, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of lay things out here because there was a call for a long, long time to put a moratorium on evictions for businesses and certainly there has there have been some things put in place, but at the same time, we don't want to see anybody evicted from their homes, especially in December in Ontario where you can't find a warm spot. How big an issue is this? Uh, it's, it's about to be massive, uh, honestly. Uh, you know, we know we had a temporary residential eviction moratorium in Ontario, um, and unfortunately that was lifted in August because it was tied to the original uh, state of emergency. Uh, but we know that throughout the year, folks have lost their jobs, they've lost their income uh, through no fault of their own, uh, and people have struggled to um, pay the rent in full every month. Um, you know, and people are making their best efforts, um, you know, some people might only be behind, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month and they're trying, um, you know, in good faith to pay as much rent as they can every month, but they're still slipping behind. Um, and, you know, uh, with shutdowns in more and more cities, uh, people are losing their jobs for the second time this year. Uh, and what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, more than 7,000 eviction hearings scheduled between now and January as the Landlord and Tenant Board proceeds with what they're calling an eviction blitz uh, going into the winter months. Uh, in a pandemic, you know, when the premier promised us in his own words back in March that no one was going to lose their home as a result of COVID-19, and it's just not true. So 7,000. To us, that sounds like a big number. If we weren't in a pandemic right now, would that number be an awful lot smaller? Uh, I absolutely think it would be. Um, You know, what we're seeing from the board is um, a politicized effort to uh, fast-track as many hearings as possible. Um, they're doing more hearings every day than they ever have before. Um, and part of the reason behind that was uh, the backlog of cases that was allowed to balloon at the board, which is hurting landlords and tenants. Uh, it's not helpful to anyone to have a backlog of cases when people are waiting, uh, waiting and waiting for their, you know, their day at the tribunal. Uh, but, th- but that backlog exists for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, it partially exists because of the temporary, uh, shutdown and evictions that we had for part of the year. Uh, but the backlog exists in January, existed in January because the conservative government wasn't appointing adjudicators to the board, uh, when the, when their terms were up. Um, so they allowed this backlog to fester going before the pandemic started. And then obviously we had the, the, the few months of shutdown that added to the backlog. Um, and instead of focusing their energies, I'm doing everything humanly possible right now to keep as many folks as housed uh, so that we can, you know, get through the the last leg of this uh, pandemic together as we, you know, are, are, are looking forward to the, the to the vaccine. Um, 
you know, this government is putting political pressure on the board to uh, to fast track all of these evictions, schedule as many as possible, as fast as possible, um, to get out from under an administrative backlog um, for entirely political reasons because of a forthcoming ombuds report that I think is going to be quite damning as to why that backlog existed in the first place. So the idea is clear that and then the ombudsman will be kinder. I, I think that's their, their hope right now. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's an entirely backwards approach. Um, is it our first priority that there's an administrative backlog on evictions cases in a pandemic? No, because we shouldn't be processing evictions at all. Um, you know, and beyond that, not only are we seeing thousands of families uh, falling uh, potentially uh, into homelessness in the next few months as a result of COVID-19, but the way that the evictions are happening as a result of this renewed effort to fast track these cases um, and as a result of moving the hearings online, uh, you know, these eviction hearings are happening in as little as 60 seconds uh, while people are struggling to get connected to the technology. Um, and, and there are serious concerns from legal advocates that these online hearings are actually violating human rights and violating the basic principles of access to justice in our legal system. Okay, so let's let's try and understand how those are taking place. We're talking with Toronto <laughs> yeah. Center NDP MPP and housing critic Suze Morrison about tenant evictions. This is something where there was help under the state of emergency, but when that state of emergency was lifted, that assistance went away, and now we've got a backlog, we've got a lot of schedules. So how are these things taking place then? Because we can't have people filing in and out of courtrooms. Yeah, so the online hearings are happening on Microsoft Teams. But the, the very first barrier is the assumption that was made somewhere along the line that everyone in Ontario has access to a phone or to a computer or to uh, stable enough internet connections, that they have enough minutes on their pay-as-you-go phones um, to actually access these hearings reliably and consistently. Um, and that premise is simply not true. Uh, and it's created an entire uh, equity issue uh, in terms of the folks that are the, the most impoverished and the most vulnerable, um, who don't have internet, uh, who don't have cell phones, um, who can't even get connected to their own eviction hearings to, to make an attempt at, uh, you know, uh, making a repayment plan to get caught up. They're just being uh, having their evictions rubber stamped in as little as 60 seconds. The folks that do get connected to these hearings are facing huge barriers. Uh, we've seen issues with people being dropped in and out of the Zooms, um, uh, sound issues, connectivity issues, um, people with disabilities that are being denied in-person hearings to accommodate those disabilities, um, people with language barriers that aren't getting access to translators. Um, and the board has reallocated all of their resources to scheduling as many eviction hearings as fast as humanly possible. And so there's no one staffing the phones or checking the fax machines. Uh, so stays of eviction are getting lost and people are being evicted despite the fact that their evictions have been called off. Um, you know, people are trying to get access, inf access to information about their cases and no one's picking up the phones. It is an absolute nightmare at the LTB right now. I don't even know where you would begin to address half of those things that you are mentioning. Yeah, which is why we're calling for an immediate uh, moratorium on evictions in Ontario. I tabled a motion uh, last week before the legislature rose for the holidays, calling for um, a renewed uh, uh, ban on evictions until we're through the COVID crisis. Uh, that motion passed unanimously. 
the will of the legislature uh, backs the call uh, for an eviction moratorium, uh, but the premier is refusing to act. He's refusing to do anything about it. Um, you know, we know that there's several mechanisms that he can use to enact um, uh, a moratorium on evictions, uh, and uh, he just lacks the political will to do it. We're talking right now with Suze Morrison, and Suze is a Toronto Centre NDP MPP and also housing critic as we look at eviction. So, I mean, if we've got 7,000 of these hearings, they're being processed lickety-split, people are not getting information. Is the ultimate at the end of this, if you can't present significant evidence or if, if you really don't even have access to your hearing, would each one of these possibly end in an actual eviction, people actually being tossed out into the street? Absolutely there. Absolutely there. Uh, you know, we heard of a case down in um, St. Catharines um, of a residential school survivor um, who had applied for a stay of eviction uh, and their uh, their landlord or their their legal representative tried to fax it into the board dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The board's not even checking their fax machine. Uh, and the sheriff showed up and evicted a residential school survivor, despite every legal attempt um, to, to stop that process from actually happening. Um, and, and that residential school survivor was evicted into homelessness. You know, we've heard of cases, a few cases up in the north where the legal aid lawyers are so uh, frustrated uh, with the lack of due process at the board and the inability to get um, hearings on stay of, stays of eviction, for example, um, they've gone to superior courts. Like they're having to go back into the court system, which is not where these cases are supposed to be handled, to try and get access to justice for their clients. Um, it is, it's an absolute method there. And the worst part is, is that people are only behind on their rent because they were never given the financial supports that they needed to weather the COVID crisis uh, and shelter in place. People lost their jobs because of shutdowns. They've lost many are losing their jobs for a second time this year. Uh, and this government never delivered on things like rent subsidies to help folks stay housed uh, and instead are sitting on $12 billion of unspent money that could be helping people through this pandemic and hoarding it uh, instead of uh, preventing evictions into homelessness. When you look at where your motion could go next, is it stalled at the feet of the Premier? Do, do we look there? Absolutely it is. It is absolutely at the feet of the Premier and nowhere else. The motion passed could... unanimously through the legislature, and he needs to act to implement it. Wow. Well, Suze, we really appreciate you giving details on this. Is this something you would say is widespread? Is it in the bigger centers? Where would you pinpoint it? It's all over the province. I mean, you know, I know that we're feeling it really acutely here in downtown Toronto because, you know, our rents are just so unbearably high. I mean, the average price of a, of a one-bedroom apartment in my community is $2,100 a month. Um, so the CERB check didn't pay the rent um, if you live in downtown Toronto. Uh, but that's not to say that, you know, rents aren't still uh, unbearably high compared to the cost of living in, in almost every municipality in the province, London included. Um, and we know that these evictions are happening in every corner of the province. Um, it's not a Toronto problem. It's a London problem. It's a Hamilton problem. It's a Sudbury problem. It's a Timmins problem. Uh, it's happening everywhere. Ms. Morrison, thank you so much for your voice in this, because the last thing we want to see is more and more people either going into a system that already is having issues finding enough places for people to stay, or worse, having to go out onto the streets in the cold months of winter. 
Thank you for the time. Thank you for your voice in this, and we'll certainly watch this story closely. Thanks so much for having me. That is Suze Morrison, Toronto Centre, NDP, MPP, and housing critic. So questions do arise, and whether it's $12 billion, whether it's being spent in some way, there is an amount of money that the province has not used for this pandemic. And you can understand saying, we don't know when this thing is over. So we've got to make sure that we've got money on hand. But when do you start spending? When do you start making use of money? And keeping people in homes, that should be a priority as far as I'm concerned. Not sure. You know, when you have a backlog and the idea is to clear the backlog so it doesn't look bad, if that is the impetus for doing this, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's where you say, okay, I'm going to take a lump from an ombudsman report. You just take that lump. That's what you take. You don't try and clear backlogs. So if that is the case, if that is what's happening, and in the eyes of housing critic Suze Morrison, that is what's happening, then this does not look good. And at the same time, it is dangerous. It's very dangerous for anybody who right now is trying to make ends meet just to get through the holidays, let alone having to keep a roof over their heads. In the meantime, we have another story to tell. And this is one that is fascinating. At the same time, it is real. And when you get something that has a great fascination to it, but something that has a very real core, it's it's something that we all need to hear. There is a book that has been written, a memoir, and it is called Booze and the Badge. And it's been written by Barry Rule, and it is a cop's battle with the bottle. And we are very lucky to have with us right now Barry Rule himself. Barry, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's uh, let's look back over this because this is this is a memoir. This deals with your own life, and it deals with some real struggles that you have had in your life. What brought you to want to share these so publicly? Essentially, uh, for all the time that I was abusing alcohol, and that. Uh, this is essentially uh, like a positive thing to do. Uh, it's a way of uh, righting a wrong uh, from my years of substance abuse. And what I'm trying to do with the book is give it to folks, especially the, the, the law enforcement community, officers that are having issues with substance abuse. They can look at it and say, you know what? Uh, he got through it. it. took quite a while, but he did get through it. And uh, maybe some of the stuff in this book will help me. When we look at policing, we look at anything that first responders are taxed with, we're starting to talk more and more about needing to have assistance in many ways for some of the individuals who they will go and and see or on calls that they will get on a day-to-day basis. But you're somebody who is an example of, hey, needing maybe a a little bit of support the other way. How do you feel that your life went in the direction that it did? What can you point to, Barry? Well, with me, it started, I'm from St. Thomas originally, um, actually Lynnhurst. And uh, I started drinking at a very young age, probably around 14 at home. And uh, after my first uh, beer, uh, 
I was chasing the high, and uh, it never stopped. Uh, from that point on, up until seven years ago, it was a roller coaster ride. I just, uh, it wasn't like I had issues. I just enjoyed the high, getting high. And uh, I think like, like a lot of people, once I had a couple of hoists, I could go to a party and, and have lots of fun. If I was sober, it was like I was, uh, you know, sitting back <laughs> doing nothing and staying away from people. When we look at policing, this is not a nine-to-five job. It can be very difficult to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to find a way to chase that high. How did those two parts of your life intertwine, your work and chasing that high? Well, uh, for one thing, um, I always went into work, no matter how hungover I was. I never drank on the job. But on the days off, uh, you know, uh, lots of times when I was alone, I'd, I'd drink. And uh, it just uh, it, it kept going. I, I at one point, uh, Mike, I stopped drinking for ten, nine, nine years. I went to the uh, International Police Olympics in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and after a 10,000 uh, meter on the track, uh, 98 degree weather, an Aussie that beat me uh, came up and handed me a, a beer, and I didn't even think I drank it, and guess what? Uh, I kept drinking that night, and I asked one of the RCMP buddies to get a case of beer, and I gave him five bucks, and he said, when the hell did you, when did you buy your last beer, you know? So, hmm. And and did it continue after that as well? No, what that's an interesting question. That I I really felt bad. I woke up the next day hungover, and I had to run a half a marathon, and it was terrible. I should have I should have uh, methyled in it, but I I was just really hungover. I went for a long walk that day, thought a lot about it. I felt really bad about it, and the next day I went out uh, went into a five thousand meter, and I won it. I won the gold, and flying home on the plane, I. I vowed I'd never, uh, I'd never do it again, and uh, guess what? Uh, there was a relapse. Hmm. We're talking with Barry Rule, who has written a memoir, Booze and the Badge, A Cop's Battle with the Bottle. When you look at some of the stresses of the job, and being a first responder can certainly bring an awful lot of those, did this become a coping mechanism at any time, or was it something different than that? Well, it, it was a coping mechanism in, in some ways for me. Um, I recall one case where uh, I had to make a notification, and it was uh, going up to a, I, I still recall, outside of Collingwood. Guy was killed, and I had to go up to notify his, uh, his wife. They were standing at the door. There was a five-year-old, about a five-year-old child with the, his wife. And I walked up, and I, I, I had to give her the news. It was tough. It was my first time doing it. And back in the good old days, they never talked about notification, so I just did the best I could. And when I finished telling her, the little guy looked up at her and said, don't cry, Dad. Don't cry, Mommy. I'll get you a new Daddy. And I lost it. Like, I went home, and my best uh, companion that night was a bottle of booze. You know? Wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's just a Tuesday. That's something that officers will deal with at any time in any place. That's right. Exactly right. And there is a lot of stress on the job. A lot of officers, uh, you know, they, they do uh, use the booze to, to medi medicate. The issue with it is, of course, you have your booze, you forget about one of your horrendous cases you're on or investigations, but it doesn't last because the next day uh, it, it comes back to bite you because you're hungover and uh, it doesn't work. I mean, get out and run or work out or do something, but uh, the booze just don't work. We're talking with Barry Rule, 
He has put together a memoir, Booze and the Badge, A Cop's Battle with the Bottle. It also outlines another battle that you have had in life, a battle with prostate cancer. Yeah, that was a real whammy. Uh, I quit, I quit drinking, um, and uh, I went to my doctor, and, yeah, I, they, they found a, a growth, a small growth, and uh, l- long story short, uh, I had the radical prostatectomy when I was only 50 years old. The interesting thing about it, Mike, my wife uh, went to my doctor, and she says, you know, Barry uh, seems to be peeing an awful lot, and uh She's concerned, so I went in, and yeah, uh, they did a uh, one of those. Uh, I don't know. They checked anyway, and uh, I had uh, a small tumor, and I had to have it out. And uh, had I not had it out, it was on the capsule. I would have had been in big trouble within five years. Wow! And you look back on on the battle that you have had with alcoholism, the battle that you had with cancer. When you look at yourself today, what do those battles look like? Well, it was a roller coaster, uh, and you know, you can't look back on this stuff and say, woe is me, or why the hell did I do that, and whatever. Uh, I've had seven years of sobriety now. We're up in Southampton, my wife and myself, and of course, we're like everybody else, we're, in, we're inside, but we're, we enjoy life. Uh, you know, I feel wonderful without it, and uh, hopefully, I've got to just remember every day, Mike, that... Uh, you know, I'm just one drink away from, from relapse. I, I can't drink, period, or uh, I'll be back. Uh, I mean, I laid in a laneway behind our place for three hours. I couldn't get up, and uh, that was horrendous. That was one of my last times uh, uh, when I finally quit. And was that after you had taken a drink, or was that preventing yourself from taking a drink? No, that was, uh, you know, I I vowed I was going to quit drinking, and it was... Uh, it was only about seven seven years ago eight, when, when it happened, and uh, we've been out drinking. And, uh, you know, I always go out, and I'd have a couple of hoists before I left for a party. I love vodka on the ice. And uh, I get to the party, and I drank like a fool. And uh, going home, I was walking my bike. I couldn't ride it, and I ended up with the bike on top of me, and I couldn't get up. I, I laid there for three hours, and uh, it just scared the living out of me. And, uh, you know, from that point on, I, I, was, I managed to quit, and... Uh, you know, quite frankly, my wife, my dear wife, Pat, said to me, you know, either quit or you, I'm out of here. And uh, God bless her for that, because uh, uh, she didn't need that. And she didn't need it over over the years. And there's nothing I can do about it. I, I, I just made some foolish, uh, you know, I did some foolish things. But, uh, you know, I'm on track. I, I look forward and uh, I, I'm hoping with this book I, I can help. I can help officers in that and there's and their families because it's not just the officer or the person abusing uh, substance abuse. The families suffer immensely, uh, even the kids. A lot of kids grow up and they become uh, adult children of alcoholics. And that's a whole different uh, malady. Absolutely. Barry, it is said sometimes that if you are struggling with addiction, there is a time when you have to hit bottom. Would that time laying on the driveway, would that have been your bottom? No, we have to go back before, uh, just after we got married. Uh, so that's about 46 years ago. And uh, we went to visit a cousin who couldn't get to our wedding. And uh, I ended up in the Meaford General Hospital. And the doctor came in the next day and said, uh, you had, you almost killed yourself. Your, your alcohol level was, I think it was over five. And uh, like a, a friend of mine said to me, he said, you know, how you ever survived, we'll never know, because I, I almost died that day, and, and that was basically the end of it. 
except, ironically, um, I quit drinking. I, qu- I, ke- I kept drinking, but I was sipping. I didn't drink a lot. And I went to uh, the Hook and Ladder Club when it was in Toronto with my, my family. They were having a birthday party. And, you know, I, I had a martini. I love martinis. And uh, I had one, and it seemed to affect me. And I thought, you know what? I think I wrecked my liver. So I decided to quit. And that was another time that I... I announced that night, uh, you know, I've, I'm going to quit, and uh, and I did, and that was for a couple years as well. And then I was back on it. Uh, you know, it was just up and down, Mike. It's, uh, it's an awful disease. Like you say, it's it's been a roller coaster. Barry Rule joining us. Barry has written a memoir, Booze and the Badge, A Cop's Battle with the bottle but at the same time being able to tell these stories being able to say hey you don't necessarily quit cold turkey things can happen this can kind of kick back in how key a part of the story of your life do you think that might be for somebody else i'm not sure that i like when i look at mike everybody's different in terms of relapse or in terms of drinking and uh you know, if you if you think you have a problem, check it out to make sure because uh, you, you you very well could and uh, and and you you, you may, very well may need help. So that's that's the best I can say about it. Have you had reaction to the book at all yet, or is that still to come? No. What is really interesting, uh, it was only it's only been out for about a, a week and a half on and been on my Facebook and. Uh, with Friesen Press and the Amazon on that, and it sold uh, about 25 copies already. And uh, what is interesting, when I was talking about the book with people, just about every person I've talked to, they say, well, you know what, I have someone, or I have a friend, or I have a cousin who's having a, a problem with booze. And I got to tell you, in society, as you probably know, Mike, you probably know a few folks that have had problems with it. There's a lot of lot of people in trouble. And uh, this COVID isn't going to help with people sitting inside worrying and, and stressed out. Uh, and, it, you know, this stuff costs bucks. I, I don't know what it costs now because I don't drink anymore, but I'm sure it's up there. Oh, absolutely. And you raised the issue. I mean, we see stats in different studies about binge drinking and the increase in binge drinking. So here's an opportunity for somebody to sit down, read what you have gone through, and gain something from it. Barry, thanks so much for the courage to put this down on paper and share the story publicly. You mentioned your Facebook page. That's that's a good way to get it. Anywhere else to find the book? Yeah, uh, It's on Amazon. And uh, it's also a Friesen Press. Uh, they have a have it, and it's on um, ebooks. Every uh, Hulu, Amazon, uh, CA, and uh, uh, there's a few others that have it. Uh, most of the ebook uh, uh, platforms have it. All right. Well, Friesen Press. You can find them at books.friesenpress.com. Again, Barry, thanks so much for putting these words down on paper for anyone else to read. And thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Please keep safe and enjoy the holidays. Yeah. Be well, Mike. That's Barry Rule. And if you're looking for the spelling of Barry's last name, it's R U H L. So Barry Rule, R U H L. Booze and the Badge, a cop's battle with the bottle and the roller coaster ride that Barry had gone on that ultimately has left him in a better spot. It can happen. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.